Good morning, church family. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8. That is located on page 297 in the Blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take this one home as our gift to you. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who, keep, who, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that in the new covenant we understand that Christ is our help, that when we were powerless, when we were assaulted, when we were even victims of our own sin and selfishness, that Christ came and rescued us. And we thank you for that. We, we have done nothing from that, from the time of our birth to this very day to merit that, and yet by grace, you have poured out that kind of love on us, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray as we consider your word today and your great provision of strength and protection and covering for your people, we pray that our eyes would see through this beautiful passage of the Old Testament right to Jesus, to Jesus as he hangs on the cross dying for the sins of all mankind and and for Jesus as he exits the tomb and and makes it possible for us to live forever with him we pray that our minds would be consumed with Jesus today so lord we thank you for that i pray god in the midst of a world that is very real with very many struggles and distractions that our hearts would be captured by your Holy Spirit today to hear your word. Lord, I pray that as I preach, the Lord, you would, God, cause me to speak with an ability that I do not have, with an authority that only you can grant, Lord. I pray that you would be, God, the shade on my right hand as I try to present your word faithfully and accurately to your people. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so, last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, we began a journey. And our journey, um, when I say that, when you hear somebody say that, um, you generally think metaphorically, you know, that, that, that we're on a journey, you know, marriage is a journey, and all these things are journeys. But this journey that we're taking is not metaphorical. It, it's real. It, it, it is an actual journey 
and yet it has to be understood spiritually. Now, I wanted to say that because you and I are probably all guilty of this. We tend to categorize things as either spiritual or real. We, we, we categorize some things as spiritual and some things as real. But what I want you to understand is the categories of the real and the categories of the spiritual are not contradictory. This can be confirmed by looking in the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul tells us that the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen. Well, why would he say that? that? Because the things that are unseen in what we would call the heavenly realm are eternal. They will never end. They'll never pass away. And everything here has one of two destinies. Everything in the created world has one of two destinies. Either it will be destroyed or it will be changed. Everything. But the things that are unseen will remain unchanged and eternal. And because of these categories, because of these categories that we assign, these, these uh, fictional categories of the real and the spiritual, um, we tend to speak in simile. And we'll say things like, the Christian life is like a war. But I want you to know that the Bible never ever says that the Christian life is like a war. What does the Bible say? It says the Christian life is a war. It doesn't talk about it as some kind of metaphorical reality. It says that we are engaged in wrestling, in warfare. It's why it tells us to fight the good fight of faith. It's why it tells us to take on ourselves the entire armor of God. It's why it tells us that we have been given weapons that can demolish strongholds, not because the Christian life is like a war, but because the Christian life is, in fact, a war. Now, similarly, in the Old Testament, I've said all that to say this, that these psalms that we're now studying, Psalm 120 to 134, they're called the Songs of Ascent. These were, these were hymns sung thousands of years ago. They, they were to remind actual pilgrims of the Lord's beauty and his faithfulness as they traveled to Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice. They were going up to Mount Zion, the holy place in Jerusalem, where the temple of God stood, where his glory was manifest, and therefore they're called the songs of ascent. They are for ascending up to the hill of the Lord. But there was nothing metaphorical about their songs. They weren't writing these songs to say, this is like this. They're saying, this is this. They were actual people on an actual journey to an actual place. And they would face actual enemies and need actual provision for the trip. And they looked to God in faith to supply what they would need to reach their final destination. So as we study and apply these psalms that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, it would be a mistake to view them as simply an ethereal religious idea we too, what I want you to understand about Christian life is that we too are sojourners. We are on a journey. We're, we're, we're traveling to a place that is far away and our sole purpose in going there is to see and to meet with God. Now this can have a couple of meanings. For example, our ultimate destination, we know this, is for those of us who die, 
before the return of the Lord, that our ultimate destination is heaven. But then even subsequent to that, at some point, we know the Bible teaches that these bodies will be resurrected and we will rule and reign with Christ here on earth after he returns. And this is the hope of all believers. So in a sense, that is our journey. But more than that, there's also a journey that we're undertaking right now in this life. It's the kind of thing that led David to say, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now listen to this. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. What is David saying? He's saying, I'm here and I want to be here. He said, I'm here away from the courts of the Lord and I want to be right here in the courts of the Lord. He says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so these psalms that we're looking at, they give us guidance for this journey. And they take us where our longing for the courts of the Lord can actually be satisfied. Now this journey can only be taken by those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Spiritualism of any stripe will not get you there. All roads do not lead to the same place, as is often said. Spiritualism of any stripe won't get you there. Even your good behavior, your religious lifestyle will serve to be only a dead end to get you where you want to be. Thomas, one of the disciples of the Lord, found this out. He said on the night before Jesus was crucified, he that says in John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus had said, I'm going away from you. He says, great, that doesn't help us at all, Lord. We have no idea how to get there. But then Jesus in the very next verse laid out a map for him. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to me, you have to go through Jesus to get to the Father. And, and Jesus uses these words, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's look at them backwards. Jesus is the life because he's the truth. If Jesus were a fraud who told lies, he could never give you life. And Jesus is the truth. Because he's the only way. If every way led to the same destination, there would be no truth at all. You would have no objectivity of anything in this life. You could just get on any path and wind up where you wanted to be. But Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He isn't open. Jesus is not open to our varying interpretations. I don't want to know what Jesus means to you. I want to know what Jesus means. And and because of this, he simply calls us to trust him, to believe and to obey so that we can live, so that we can experience his life. This is worship. This is the journey that we're on. This is the key to spiritual progress for the believer. So last week we started this journey on these songs of ascent up to the, the mountain of the Lord. Psalm 120 is where we began. And we saw that our journey begins in distress. Yay! We saw that we begin our journey by crying out for deliverance, literally for salvation. And, and that we, but we continue our journey by crying out for sanctification, to be made conformed to the image of His Son. We found that our future hope is in our glorification. 
And we saw, however, in light of that, that we must now live as we do today among those who are hostile to our desire to be with God and his glorious presence. But nevertheless, though this is true, our journey is underway and we are bound for the heavenly Jerusalem. And so the psalmist begins today's psalm with these words, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, there are several thoughts that will help us understand this opening verse. Commentators are imagining imagining those actual pilgrims on their actual journey, that they come to a camping spot, perhaps in a wide valley on the road to Jerusalem. Night has fallen, and they're surrounded by dark and foreboding hills, and they face danger out there in the open valley from wild animals, from exposure, and from bandits. And where would these weary travelers find safety? Who would show up to be their protector? See, the pagans that lived in the areas around them believed that their gods dwelt on those peaks. And these gods were always observing and sometimes defending and sometimes judging the human race. And and so these pagans made threats and they believed that their gods would descend from the hills to attack the people of God in the midst of their travels. But the sojourners lifted their eyes to the to to the hill of Mount Zion. That was their destination. That's where they're going. And Mount Zion represented the authority, the kingly reign of God, his power. In Psalm 20, there's this beautiful prayer. The whole, the whole chapter is just this beautiful prayer. And part of that prayer says this, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. I'll lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Mount Zion was God's earthly dwelling place. It was his his throne. It was where his people would cast their gaze in in expectation of coming help. And on those dark and scary nights on the road to Jerusalem, the people of God might have sung this hymn in a call and response format, kind of like that last song we sung. And one group from maybe over here would cry out, from where does my help come? And it would be answered by this comforting response. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. See what they were saying in that. My help comes from the Lord. They were saying that Yahweh was the defender of Israel. And he would protect her himself. He wouldn't assign them to angels. He wouldn't assign them to kings or judges. He would be their help. He would be their defense. It reminds us of what Paul wrote much later in the New Testament when he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that was the idea behind the song. See, the heathen imagined that their gods were enthroned on the mountains, but Israel's God made those mountains. He was the the maker of heaven and earth. And he did so by the word of his power, by the word of his mouth. They are his mountains. And so by saying that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, they're they're declaring in their faith that the thrones of the idols have been rendered powerless by him. Now let's fast forward this to the year 2021. Have you known trouble Are you experiencing 
fear. And my call to you would be, don't look to the gods of this age. Success and power and money, don't look to those things. No matter how exalted of a perch they seem to occupy, don't even look to an earthly mountain like Jerusalem or Washington, hoping that your prayer just might reach God's ears there. Believer, you are the temple of the living God. He dwells within you. He is close by. And he's the creator of all. And he's the Lord, because he's the creator of all, he's the Lord of all this stuff that causes you so much anxiety with its threats. Delta variant, rising inflation, terrorist reinsurgence, hurricanes, mistreatment at work, mistreatment at school, rejection, sickness, depression. What can any of these things do to us if our help comes from the Lord? Jesus is our helper. He said he will never leave us or forsake us. He said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Lord is your helper. Christian, you are safe in Jesus's care. But does this guarantee that we'll never have hard times or incredible trials? Of course not. If you've been a Christian and lived more than 15 minutes after you became a Christian, you've already discovered this. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that we will never be subject to the things that we fear will destroy us. For the child of God, listen to this, all suffering, all trial is merely temporary if you are a child of God. But if you are an unbeliever, let me tell you something, that your earthly suffering now is only a foretaste of an eternal reality. Luke, uh, Jesus said in Luke twelve four, he said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And the psalmist goes on to tell us what this protection that the Lord provides looks like. First, he tells us the protection of the Lord is gracious. See, the hills around Israel and the Holy Land there are rocky. And it would be easy for someone who was ascending the hills to dislodge a stone and go tumbling back down again. But God promises his, his sojourners, his travelers, he promises them stability. In, in verse 3 of our text today, he says, He will not let your foot be moved. Other versions, the NASB, the NIV, CSB, HCSB, all say that he will not let your foot slip. In Scripture, sin is often described as a slippery place where people stumble. For example, Jeremiah 23, verse 12 says, Therefore their way, talking about sinful people, Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. And do you know, believer, why you don't slip? Do you know why you were still saved this morning when you woke up? Because the grace of God is steadying your walk. He causes you and I, in all of our weakness, to persevere. Because Christ, because of Christ and Christ alone, we will not lose our footing. I love the way the beautiful benediction of the, of the tiny little letter to Jude. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Now I'm going to pause right there and just say that there are many, many times in my Christian life where I did not believe that. I believed that if I was going to make it without stumbling, that was all going to be by my white-knuckled effort. That's not what the scripture says, is it? It says he's able to keep me from stumbling and to present me blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Paul told the Philippians that he was confident of this very thing, that the one who started the work in us will be faithful to complete it. He will not let your foot be moved. Trust him and thank him for his work in you. But the Lord's protection of us is not only gracious, it's unwearied. The last part of verse 3 and and verse 4 says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps you will neither, he who keeps Israel rather, will neither slumber nor sleep. The prophet Elijah, I love one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, had this showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel to see whose God would answer by fire. It was going to be the ultimate test to see who, who showed up and who, who answered by fire. So the prophets of Baal went first and, and even after crying out and for hours and cutting themselves, just trying to, to get their God to just show up, their, their God after all of that just remained absolutely silent, completely unmoved. And so you may not know this, but The old prophet was the inventor of trolling. He asked Baal's prophets, he said, "Um, hey, you guys figure your God might be in the men's room? You, uh, You figure he might be on a trip? And they said this, perhaps he's fallen asleep. And see, Elijah mocked because a God who sleeps is a worthless God, as Baal was. The God of Israel, this text tells us, never sleeps. He is always watching. And when I say this, I'm not talking about a passive observation. He's not like a security camera. He's, he's not just watching, but, but it's, it's an active presence. He's watching, but he's also defending. He's sympathizing. He's strengthening. He's supporting. He's encouraging. I remember when my boys were newborns, I would love to just hold them and watch them sleeping. And I was confident that any threat that might have entered our house, that I could wrestle that threat and overpower it because of my boundless love for my child that I was holding and looking at. But while holding my children... I would often doze off myself. I'd fall asleep. Now, luckily, no bears ever broke into our house. Uh, no, no, you know, terrorists, nothing like that. So I didn't, I didn't have much to worry about. But I fell asleep. That's the point. But God never sleeps in his care of you. His eyes are never covered. He is a sentry who knows no fatigue during the long watches of the night. Nothing has ever happened to you or ever will that God does not see. Isaiah 49 says this. It's such a beautiful promise, such a wonderful verse. It says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. 
And then God says, yet I will not forget you. He says, behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What a promise is that? God says in this passage that we read that he keeps you individually and that he keeps Israel corporately. Keep becomes the central word in this text. It's used six times in this text we read. Keeps means that Jesus loves you and protects you just as much as he loves and protects the church. Now, why would I make a point like that? Because sometimes we feel like that we are protected by association, that because we're, we're just, you know, maybe hanging out with the right people that God protects us. And that's, that, and we're, we're total believers in the power of the church as a corporate body in this place. But sometimes while we think of the church as a corporate body, we cannot forget it's made up of those who are individually joint heirs, literally brothers and sisters of Jesus. And we're, when we're alone or when we're united with the saints, God is our keeper. Jesus is our keeper. And keeper is a shepherding term. It, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's in the one who keeps the flock by tending to it, by providing food and water, shelter, medical attention, protection from tra- predators, and, and who rescues us from the messes that those dumb animals can get themselves into. John ten eleven says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus is speaking. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And can you see here, When Jesus says he's your keeper, can you see who Jesus is in your life with this? Not only is the Lord's protection of his people gracious and unwearied, but his protection is intimate. It says in verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. See, Jesus is so close, so intimate with his people that it becomes like the shadow of his people. That's literally what the shade on your right hand means. How much distance, let me ask you this, if we go out at noon and we're standing in, in the sunlight and the you know, sun's high in the sky, or better yet, in the afternoon or even in the morning, and the shadows are long, let me ask you, if you run real fast, how much distance can you put between you and your shadow? I mean, if you just, I mean, really book it. If you really, you know, pop a couple of Red Bulls, and you just take off. How, how far of a distance can you put between you and your shadow? It's an absurd question. Of course, you can't, move, you can't put any distance. Your shadow is attached to you. It, it, it's attached to you in relation to the light you are walking in. And Jesus says that he is an ever-present help to us. If you could outdistance yourself from your shadow, then maybe you could outdistance yourself from Jesus, but you can't do it. Christ's intimate closeness is revealed to us in two ways in the text. First, it's, it's, uh, it's revealed to us in the hardship of our trials. The psalmist envisions this like the sun beating down on us. In such times, the Lord keeps us by providing the shade of his promises and the refreshment of his grace. Just as he appeared in the pillar of cloud to, to shield Israel from the blazing sun after the exodus, he will cover you also by the everla- his everlasting love and his faithful care in your trials. And second, it, it, he, he protects us and he's intimately close to us in the torment of our minds. 
If we were to be real honest, I want to ask for a show of hands, but who among us has never had any fears or any worries or anxieties that seem to bring them at times to the point of feeling like you're losing your mind? Well, to you, the promise of the scripture is that the moon will not strike you by night. And you might think, what the heck does that mean? Well, take comfort. I had to look it up myself. It literally means to be moonstruck. It, and and from that's the word moonstruck. We don't use that a whole lot anymore, but it's literally the word we get lunatic from. It, Luna, lunar. And so God is helping us to, to even, not when things are oppressing us from the outside, like the sun beating down on us, but, but when just our mind takes off and, and takes us to scary places. The Bible says that Jesus' closeness gives us peace and soundness of mind. God's protection of his people is not only gracious, unwearied, and intimate, this is the good part. It's also comprehensive. I don't know if you've ever had a collision in your car and you did not have comprehensive coverage on your car. Man, that's a painful thing to bear sometimes. Terrible. But God, God's, uh, God just doesn't cover us with liability. He covers us comprehensively. Verse 7 says, the Lord will keep you, watch this, from all evil. Man, can anyone here ask for more than that? The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Nothing is beyond his ability to keep you. Let's break that down. He will keep you from all evil. Charles Spurgeon said, this is a far-reaching word of covering. It includes everything and excludes nothing. The message of the gospel is that Christ has rescued us from all the poison of sin, all the poison of evil. He even disarmed its weapon death with all its vile sting and its boasts of triumphs. He put an end to it. But then it goes on to say, he will keep your life. Now, I have to admit, I like the New American Standard and the King James Version better in this particular instance, because there it says that God will preserve or keep your soul, not your life. And that's important, because keeping your life in this passage doesn't simply mean that God pledges to keep your your breathing maintained and your brain waves flowing, but it, it means so much more. He preserves your soul. And oftentimes the scripture substitutes the word soul with the word heart. So what then is the soul? What are we talking about? Why is that significant that other, other translations say that he preserves your soul? See, life is comprised. What makes us uh, uh, who we are because of what God has invested in us is our thinking, our willing, our feeling. All these are functions of the soul, not the body. And without them, there's essentially no life. There's, you know, it, it's who we are is our soul. And, and it's our mind, it's our will, it's our emotions that make us truly human. They matter. And we are not simply, uh, to be, make a comparison, we're not simply ruled by our instincts like unthinking animals. In fact, Jude says that when we are ruled by our instincts, it's a sign of our great sinfulness. God has called us to something different as believers, to to live from our soul and not our instincts. And our keeper's promise is to preserve us in all these, our, our mind, our will, our emotion, in all these areas, no matter what happens to us externally, no matter what happens to this physical body, no matter what assaults come to it, 
God is going to keep our soul. I love Isaiah 26. It says, you keep him as a promise. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace happens in the domain of the soul. But it goes on to say he keeps you as you go in out and as you come in. And this simply means at all times he keeps you. The Lord's loving eye is on you as you go out to your public life, the one everybody sees with all its threats and its pressures. But he's also with you as you return to your private life with all of its fears and anxieties. His arm is bared and he is ready to deliver you from all harm. But lastly, it says this wonderful thing. He keeps you forever. From this time forth and forevermore. John 6, 39. Such a great confirmation of this. And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. While it is certainly so much more, and we talk about that all the time, while it's certainly so much more, your salvation is nothing less than eternal protection, eternal keeping by the good shepherd himself. It is a keeping that we enjoy even now, but that will have its ultimate realization in the kingdom that is to come. Nothing that belongs to Christ will or can be lost. And what a joy, what a confidence this gives us. Nothing can ultimately harm us because we've been brought to and brought through Jesus Christ. And we're going to be kept forever, able to laugh at danger as we cling to the promises of our Lord. So Psalm 121, with all its promises, prepares us with the right mindset as we proceed on our journey toward the high calling of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. The elect, those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit unto salvation, have nothing to fear because God is our helper and God is is our keeper. His care for us is gracious, unwearied, intimate, and comprehensive. He keeps us from all evil. He keeps our soul. He keeps us as we go out and we come in, and he does so forever and ever. Amen. And I am so glad. I am so glad that we have nothing to fear. No matter what, you know, Fox News and CNN tell you you have to fear, the Bible says, that the Lord is my keeper. The Lord is the shade on my right hand. The Lord is the one who watches over my going out and my coming in, both now and forevermore. If God is for me, who can be against me? Would you stand with me? We're going to come to the uh, table and receive the elements for communion. I'll invite you to do that in just a moment. Um, All we ask is that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not asking if you're religious or if you uh, do good things and help little old ladies across the street and that sort of thing. I'm asking if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus alone for your salvation. And if so, we invite you to join us at the table, partake of the bread and the cup.
uh, in fellowship with us. But I want you to, uh, as you think, we always kind of preach toward the table in our church. And, and as, I, as we do this today, I want you to think that the ultimate casting our eyes toward Jesus, I'll lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes from. And Jesus demonstrated his help to us, his salvation to us, on a hill called Calvary as he bled and died so that you wouldn't have to, so that you could receive his eternal salvation, his keeping, so you could be one of his, protected, a member of his flock forever. And, and he gave us this great sacrament, this ordinance of the church, so that we could, we could often remember his broken body, his spilled blood, so that we could remember those things and rejoice and experience his presence and feast on him. So I'll say all that to say, as you've heard the promises of God this morning, please don't come casually or flippantly to the table. Come joyfully, come celebrating, but don't come as just a thing we do so that we can get out of here and go have lunch. Come and feast on the Lord. Come and fellowship with Jesus this morning. You may come. I think we have some servers that are coming, and uh, you can come, and then we will uh, we will uh, serve you and and uh, enjoy uh, the the table together. I'm going to just invite you, similar to what Pastor David did earlier, just take a minute and in your heart think about what is happening here that Jesus is reminding you of his sacrifice that he has promised to be present in this ordinance and that he has invited you to feast on him just think about those realities so that you can take joyfully and soberly take a minute and just consider those things and thank the Lord for those realities Matthew writes, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's take the the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's take the cup together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to him be glory forever and ever, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.